You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. Both of them, Kennedy and Khrushchev, my father was prepared to discussion with the president. His goal to protect the Cuba, not start the war. And the Kennedy have to reach his goal, how he can take these missiles out. Sergei Khrushchev, the son of former Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. At the very height of the Cold War in the late 1950s and early 60s, one of the most vilified men in the world, well, at least in the U.S., was Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. For 11 years, the USSR was led by this brash and arrogant and often angry man. You may have heard that he once said that the Soviet Union would bury the United States. Now, it turns out that was a mistranslation, but it proved to be a valuable propaganda point for the U.S. for many years. Nikita Khrushchev's second son, Sergei, was in his 20s during the years that his father led the Soviet Union. Eventually, Sergei became a very well-educated and well-respected engineer in the Soviet Union, a job that he held until 1991. It was that year, the same year the Soviet Union crumbled to pieces, that Sergei Khrushchev emigrated to the United States, and he became a naturalized U.S. citizen in 1999. Two years later, I met him when he published a book about his father. So here now, from 2001, Sergei Khrushchev. For all these years, we've gotten only one side of the story, and now we see what it was like on the other side at the same time. It's like seeing something that you've seen for many, many years, but now seeing it from the reverse angle all of a sudden. Yes, it was one of the purpose of publication here. By the way, it was also published in China. And... Uh, when you are dealing with the other countries, you have to know or understand that it is also different cultures. And it's very difficult to find out how they're thinking, how they're making this decision. The Cold War was filled with misperception and misunderstanding because we made, we Americans, we Russians, Soviets, our own model of the opposite side. And many cases, as I now understand, has nothing with reality on the both sides. And then we're making decisions who, that could bring us to the war. And the second is not less important. It was the Cold War. It was not shooting, but was still war. In that war, you cannot present the positive image of the enemy. So you're creating this image of the arrogance of their leaders, stupidity of them, and then you're believing in this. And then you are living in this world, and I trying to to uh, show how it was in real. It was mistakes. It's some stupidities, but very different. Some, bo some bold decisions. And it is important even now because it is no communism in Russia, but it is still different culture. And you have to understand what is was President Yeltsin thinking, what is way of thinking of new President Putin, what what mean democracy in Russia. It's very different from American. But you're right. Only now can you tell us, I, you probably couldn't have told us 40 years ago, that blustery as though he may have been, your father really had no interest in starting a war at all. Oh, no. It is, he told why we have to fight for the communism in the United States and sacrifice our lives for their better life. When they will understand that it is the best life in the world, they will elect their president 
the communists, and then they will join us. Because he, he was not uh, driving ide ideologically. He was very pragmatic. He told that uh, ideology would win, that uh, part of the world would win, that will present better life of, for the people. And he was right. Even that he expected it will be communism, and in reality it's happened that what the capitalism took over, but he, he never thought that you can bring the success to the people through the war. And second, that was very important. He was twice at the war, the Second World War, the defeated Kharkov at Kiev and the Stalingrad battle at the Kursk battle, and he knew what is really war mean, and uh, he never had any intention to start any war. He even could not watch movie about wars. He told, I cannot sleep after that. By the way, it was very similar with the President Eisenhower, because his grandson, David Eisenhower, once told me, when I told this story, that my grandpa was the same. He never watched the movie about the war, because he makes so nervous that he could not sleep. I guess today they would call that post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, maybe it's for each of such things you have, you have the scientific uh, name. <laughs> it, it occurred to me as I was reading your book that you are now about the same age as your father was during the years that you describe. Yes, he uh, became the leader of the Soviet Union in '53, and at the time he was uh, 59, and he left the office or ousted of power in 64 when he was 70, and now I'm 67, so I sometime <laughs> in the, uh, <coughs> at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, it, it, it occurred to me, as I've thought about my father over the years, if he's, he's gone now, but as I've thought about him over the years, it occurred to me, well, when I was his age, he was doing this, and, and then I remember, and I try to remember what it must have been like to feel the, the way he felt when I'm, you know, as as I now have reached that age, do you have any special reflections on what it must have felt like in your, to be in your father's position now that you are, you have the years, you have the wisdom, and you understand what it feels like to be a man in his 60s? And Of course, yes and no, because the man of the 60s and the man that won the best to the his own country and to the world and my country, my native country, is, the, uh, is Russia. So for Russia, and them, and looking what mistakes they're doing and bringing the country to the disaster. Of course, I understood my father's feeling when he lived and told, first of all, we have to prevent the war. Second, we have to be strong. And the third, really, we have invest his two real goals in agriculture and the housing program. Not mm -hmm. there. But on the other side, uh, I'm a very different character. He was the real leader, decisive man. I'm not decisive. I prefer, uh, prefer to give advices. And when it's coming time to decide, I'm thinking many times, thinking this and that, and mostly making the wrong decision. <laughs> not all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You have one of the most fascinating accounts in here of what uh, uh, the Soviet Union would call the Caribbean crisis, what we know is the, in the West of the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Even Kirkus Reviews, who read your book, and they're tough. They don't like any book, but they loved the, your account of that crisis. They said it is probably the most acute account that we have of the emotions, the psychology of that that drama. You know, that's one of the most written about crises in the last 35 years. 
entire thousands of books have been written about that. But you bring this whole fresh new perspective to it that nobody's ever read before. Yes, because I tried to, I did not try to write about things that I was not involved, except American side, when I can present mm -hmm. reading the American books, because I was not here, I was there. And I told what my father told, what I remember, what what were there, what was really was uh, in our hearts and our intention, because my father never uh, thought about any aggression against the United States. He wanted to send the political message to United States. Now Fidel Castro on our side, really it was Castro who drove all this crisis when he announced that he will be join the Soviet bloc. Then you have uh, the superpower, great power to protect all your allies. And he was so close to the United States that you don't know how to do. By the way, it, this case very similar to the West Berlin case. Mm -hmm. And my father told how I can send them this message. Diplomatically, they will not pay attention. Conventional arms will not work. The communication it is too poor. So I have to install the nuclear weapons and then strategic missiles, it will be the signal don't touch Cuba. And he didn't understand of the different way of thinking of the Americans. And just what I told before, that Americans who lived all their history secured by two oceans, much more thinking about uh, technical accessibility of the territory than mm -hmm. political decisions like Europeans when we had enemies all our history. Each country fought for all their uh, <coughs> history with the, with, with the other, with the different other countries. And uh, so when these uh, missiles appeared there, he deal not with the White House, who I think as a politician could accept it because not bigger mm -hmm. threat that, uh, that before. It's still huge superiority to the United States, but the public opinion with the press, with the military, all of them was became crazy. They wanted to take them out for any expenses, not thinking how dangerous it is. And both leaders, now I'm talking about both of them, Kennedy and Khrushchev, worked in the political in, uh, environment that was, was not prepared, because my father was prepared to discussion with the president, and he had to reach his goal to protect the Cuba, not start the war. Mm -hmm. And the Kennedy had to reach his goal to find the compromise how he can take these missiles out. And it is the first example of the Cold War, where they started this negotiation secretly that means that they trusted each other much more than before any previous crisis all the, the previous crisis each side showed a big feast to each other and looking who will blink first now they thought really we can deal with each other we are, have the same goal prevent the war after this short break, Sergei Khrushchev tells about one particularly audacious plan the Soviets considered for putting those missiles in Cuba. Now more of my 2001 conversation with Sergei Khrushchev. There was a defector, as you mentioned in your book, there was a defector a number of years ago who told us when he came over here that your father considered Kennedy a weakling. 
You know, the defect of his name was Arkady Shevchenko. Mm -hmm. He, maybe if he did not lie, because my father usually told that the president candidate different than Eisenhower, because he just controlled his foreign policy by himself. And the Eisenhower usually give this responsibility to somebody else. So mm -hmm. he told it much easier to me to negotiate with Kennedy because I know with whom I'm talking, who is really responding me. And their trust was built on the foundation that was built at the Eisenhower time. I don't want to blame Eisenhower. Mm -hmm. He was a great leader also. So he Never thought told that he is weak or he is just the, such young boy will not care about them. And it is impossible to any real politician. You can be any person you will pick on the street. If he will be, have the title President of United States, you cannot treat them as a weak person. But why he told this? In many meetings he also told, but this young man thinking that because he's president of the United States, he can dictate us. No, we will just show him that also the great country. And because he was a low-level uh, bureaucrat at that time, he was on one meeting. And I remember conversation about Kennedy and hundreds. <laughs> so it was never he talked that Kennedy was... So we can, uh, we can manipulate him. Mm. He couldn't manipulate Castro, by the way. <laughs> also. Oh, I, I, now there was, before we leave Cuba, I wanted to ask about one other thing. You said in here that uh, the early planning about the missiles was to disguise them as palm trees. And is this, is this an actual, was this what, really what they thought? They could disguise the missiles as palm trees? No, I don't. You know, when you are very close to the power, and looking in the many reports, especially oral reports, you can find some of them bold, some of them stupid, <laughs> some of them important. When this marshal, and he was just the commander of the strategic force, told we can camouflage them in the palm tree, I am a young man. I was not young, but 26, mm -hmm. six, 27. I thought, how can do this? But he told, yes, we will put the leaves on the top. Nobody will recognize them. I told, how we can argue this thing and really it was uh, the role that when he they're talking in the such uh, level and such conversation my present i cannot be just jumping and so no comrade marshall you are wrong i think you cannot do this <laughs> well but but uh, not to be fair there's also another story in here but we have because we have to laugh at the american side too mm -hmm. when you talk about the 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 giant uh, the great seal of the u.s that was given to the u.s embassy in moscow as a gift and it's hanging on the wall that has the, the listening device built in and uh, i guess that we, so this went on for months that they were able to listen to conversations well, yes, many months and maybe years, because you know what is happening. Usually at working, you are taping this conversation. Mm -hmm. Then you uh, telling this to somebody mm -hmm. there. Then, in some time, it's going in the hand of the spy of the opposite side. Then mm -hmm. American content are just starting to find out who told this. Then they're finding the ambassador told it in his office. So you have to uh, check the office, and usually it's taking months or years until you will <laughs> 
trace all the things. Wouldn't you think that some American might say, you know, this big thing that they've given us to hang on the wall, maybe we should check that to see if it's bugged. <laughs> but you have to understand, it was, uh, the ambassador was uh, the chief Bolin, and it was 54-55, where all these bugs was not so sophisticated like now. Now, of course, even the small guy will not accept that he think it's uh, usual, but that that time, the listening device was the, of the size of the suitcase. You know, this is, this is one, another thing that is so fascinating about your book, is that when we look back on this time now, so many of those things like that, were, we were so innocent and we were so naive and we were so backward compared to all the technology and the sophistication and sometimes the cynicism of today. This seems like such a, a much more innocent time in so many ways. It was different time. I can't tell that any time, any political period was innocent. Mm -hmm. All of them are making their own crimes, their own mm -hmm. mistakes, starting wars that bringing us to the death of the people. But it is different. You now we sit sophisticated thinking about the past or oh, how stupid they were. This sometimes is when you are just uh, the fifth grade in the school, you think, I know everything what these Greeks spend their <laughs> life to find out. <laughs> True. Listen, we only have a few minutes left, but I wanted, sure. I wanted to ask you to, and it's, it's probably unfair to ask you to sum up a huge book like this in, in just a, a couple of minutes, but do you think, looking back on it now with some distance and some perspective, that your father started many of the reforms that later on uh, people like Gorbachev got the credit for? Yes, the reforms is just uh, stopping and then the next period started from the same place because you cannot move reform in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. It was what was the bad thing that these reforms stopped for more than 20 years when Brezhnev came to power and after that the reformation of the Soviet Union became much more difficult and dangerous. It was much more weapons. My father told, by the way, two, it was in the book, 200 missiles or 300 missiles mm -hmm. will be enough. Mm -hmm. And then what we face, we faced 40,000 nuclear warheads. And it is money. He told, I cannot spend this money because I really, if you will spend this, you will leave us without pences and Americans will take over. And then when Gorbachev came, it was no money. He was without pences. And of course, he was uh, the person who really wanted to do the best, but sometimes he didn't know how to do this. But it was not his fault. After this short break, the astounding offer that JFK made to Nikita Khrushchev just as we were starting our race to go to the moon. Now back to my 2001 conversation with Sergei Khrushchev. You told me something in here that I didn't know, many things I didn't know before, but one thing was that President Kennedy had offered uh, your father the opportunity to join the U.S. in the race to the moon, and, the, and yes. your father said no to that. No, he did, it was twice. First, he said no in 1961 in Vienna, because all the time it was fear. If Americans will know how weak we are, that we have really no intercontinental missiles, they will start the war. They make the first strike. But in two years, everything changed. And just before the assassination of President 
Kennedy repeated this offer, and my father told, yes, we have to do this, to join this. All of them has their own interest. I think Kennedy has back mind, if Russian will be first the third time, it will be the disaster. Better we'll step there together. And my father... He was greedy. He did not like to spend money when he don't understand, even for the glory going to the moon. And he thought if we'll spend these expenses with Americans, it will be better. And second, he told, can improve our relations if we're starting to work together in space. And I think it was a lost opportunity. Has history been fair to your father? I think still not, because... Uh, when he was ousted of power in Soviet Union, he became non-person. He was not purged, he was not executed, but he was never mentioned. Even I remember one general was asked, he was at uh, Stalingrad during the battle, and he was just under my father's command, and he was asked, do you know, was Stalin in Stalingrad? He told, I don't know. He told, do you know, was Khrushchev in Stalingrad? I told, I know nothing about this. And my father told, I met him every day there in Stalingrad, so they missed this. In the United States, of course, he was the representative of the evil empire, and burial, mm -hmm. pounding shoe, all other this stupidity. It was very used very well by the propaganda, because, by the way, he never told them, burial. And later, when uh, Russia turned from communism, it was also not so much in Russia about him, because he is not so ugly as others, so he, he can, they cannot say anything bad about him. And now they're starting to talk, they're starting to rethink this, rethink that reforms when this big leap of the so-called free market reforms failed in Russia and created criminal society, they started to think about other attempts of reforms. So I hope that it's still not last day. In the, of the world. It is also, I can't uh, tell you, I think that it was at that time when we really, in 1953 till 1964, went a long way from war to peace, because it was, for some reason, Stalin thought that Third World War will start at some time in 55, 56, and he made everything to prepare for this. And my father turned to the other side. He told, we have to look in the eyes of American leaders and think, is it possible to deal with these people who understand it was fear on our side that you will start the war? And then he answered in 55, yes, we have to be strong, but... We can deal with them. And then it was crisis after crisis, but we are growing there and coming further, further from war to peace. And of course, would he accomplish his goal? His goal was to reform the Soviet army, to stop production of tanks and combat planes and reduce the size of Soviet army to half a million. And if the NATO and Americans face this on the opposite side, I don't think that they will thinking about starting the war. It could bring us to the end of the Cold War in the late 60s. We would not become the friends. We wouldn't become because mm -hmm. it was still communism and capitalism. Mm -hmm. I am not trying to change the history. Right. But 
It will be not called war. It will be still the same competition that my father told. That system would win. That present the better life for the people. And, we, and we're talking about the race. Mm-hmm. On the Soviet side, it was no missile race with Americans. Never. It was very different race. It was race to catch up Americans in production, butter, milk, and uh, meat per capita, which never existed on American side. American race for the uh, missiles, we race for the meat. In each race, was <laughs> not with opposite side, but but with yourself. Wow. So it's a, one of the lessons from the past for the future. Sergei Khrushchev died in 2020, just days before his 85th birthday at his home in Rhode Island. He died of a single gunshot wound to the head. An investigation turned up no evidence of foul play and no criminal charges were ever filed. Now you can find easy Amazon links to Sergei Khrushchev's book at our website, HeardEverything.com. And while you're at HeardEverything.com, be sure and listen to my 1995 interview with the niece of another Soviet leader. Luba Brezhneva. Probably it was the first step that helped me to be dissident and asked my uncle to let me go. Let me leave this country. I'm not happy here. I don't want to stay here. No, you have to stay here. And my 1992 conversation with two military generals who were on opposing sides during the Cuban Missile Crisis, U.S. General William Smith and former Soviet General Anatoly Gribkov. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, the two great powers came closer to nuclear war than we have ever come before or since that time. Everyone is saying, who won? I want to say that wisdom won. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the astronomer who became kind of an unwitting spy hunter. My 1990 conversation with the author of The Cuckoo's Egg, Cliff Stoll. I was following him silently. He had to be silent or else he'd get caught. I had to be silent or else he'd know that we were watching him. So in a sense, I was performing counter-espionage. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. ¶¶